We're in our second uh, night of our new Timothy series tonight. So we're going to be looking at Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Timothy 1, 3 through 11. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll recall that we just looked at the first two verses. And in those verses, Paul provides what he believes is the pivotal information that you need to know about him and Timothy. Namely, their relationship to the triune God, that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God the Savior and of Christ Jesus. And Timothy is his true child in the faith. They have this common faith and they together are recipients of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our uh, Christ Jesus our Lord. And now in in verses 3 through 11, we're going to see the broader situation, the context that leads Paul to write this letter. So be listening for the cast and context in these couple verses here. I'll read again, 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with whom I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would use your holy word like a sword to pierce our hearts, to help us to see what we need to see in your word where our lives need to be reformulated in light of it, where we need encouragement, where we need challenging. Above all, let us see Christ Jesus more clearly and strive to live in a way that honors him. Amen. Okay, verse 3, who is the cast for the book of Timothy? We looked at last week, Paul and Timothy. Who else do we find out? Yeah, false teachers, or, or as Paul calls them, certain persons. Yeah, so Paul is the one urging Timothy. Timothy is tasked with charging. There's these certain persons who are teaching wrongly. And then it's more implicit, but in Ephesus, there's a church. So there's a larger church that Paul um, most likely is writing this letter to Timothy uh, with the express intent that the church would also hear it. So it's kind of backing Timothy up. Like, it's not just Timothy doing his own thing, but Paul is also, you know, it's standing behind it. So 
in a sense, it's, it's authorizing Timothy to exercise authority in a variety of ways. Well, who are these certain persons? What do we know about them? Uh, Paul tells us a few things here. Yeah, they want to be teachers of the law. Yeah, they want to, seem to want to exercise authority in the church. Uh, they possibly may even be elders. Uh, perhaps that's part of why Paul focuses so much on who ought to be elders, who ought not to be elders. Um, there's no indication like in Galatians that they're outsiders who have come from somewhere else to try and teach something different. They seem to be arising from the church itself. Okay, so maybe they're wannabe elders. Maybe they're actually elders who have in some way strayed and need replaced. Uh, what they teach is a different doctrine, is what uh, Paul describes it as, teaching a different doctrine. The word he uses there is literally um, what we get our word heterodoxy from, heterodidascaline. Um, so they're, uh, that is to say, it's not heresy per se, like we sang about in the church's one foundation. Uh, we typically think like false teaching, heresy, it's the exact opposite of right teaching. So, you know, the church says God is three in one, and the false teacher says, no, Jesus is only God's son, and he was sent here from another planet, or, you know, some sort of Mormon thing like that. Uh, but the idea here, what I'm trying to, uh, we need to draw out is it's not so much that it's just the exact opposite of right teaching, but it kind of has strayed from the path a bit. So it's general right direction, but, but it's veered. Um, uh, Paul says somewhere in here, by swerving from these certain persons in verse 6. Uh, so the sense is that they, um, uh, you know, cross-country trip, you're heading to Chicago, let's say, okay, you're heading east, or Dan heading to Dort, you're heading in the right direction, but you take the wrong off-ramp or bypass or something, and you get uh, off, off track. That's the picture Paul has here of this different doctrine, that it um, uh, starts out in the right direction, and then it gets off track. What does Paul tell Timothy? Oh, uh, uh, and here's where I, different doctrine, deviant doctrine is maybe another way to put it, um, but maybe not heresy per se. What does Paul ask Timothy to do about it? How does he say to deal with this situation? Charge them not to teach it. That's kind of a strong word, a charge. Uh, it's a authoritative instruction. Stop doing this, okay? Uh, Timothy is tasked with exercising authority in the church in Ephesus. Now, uh, many headlines in the recent years have drawn attention to the fact that a, authority in the church can be abused. Uh, elders and leaders in the church uh, overuse their authority, they abuse their authority, they become authoritarian in a variety of unhealthy ways. That's a problem. But on the other hand... What Paul draws our attention to here is that you can also fail to use authority rightly by neglecting it. By just saying, well, they think their thing, we think our thing, let's just let bygones be bygones. That also would be a failure to exercise authority rightly. So um, there's, there's kind of two sides you can fall off there. You can be too authoritarian, too much, you know, get in people's business being over authoritarian, but you can also fail to exercise authority, and both are problems. Uh, in the church, in, in, in your workplace, in your family, uh, you know, that dynamic applies everywhere. And you don't have to 
call out loud, but just think, I, I think probably most of us tend to go one way or another on that, that we really don't like confrontation, and so our tendency is to be maybe a bit more like Timothy, that we need someone to tell us, no, this is your job, you need to go confront them about this, or, you know, we kind of just tend to be heavy-handed and that's, you know, something's wrong here, we need to get in there and tell them what's right today, okay? Uh, so anyways, we just need to recognize that our, we could go either way. He charges them not to teach different doctrine, and then in verse 4 he tells them a second element, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Okay, so don't teach these different doctrines, and also quit focusing on these myths and endless genealogies. Uh, Paul doesn't spell out exactly what these myths or endless genealogies are, and so they're kind of elusive. Uh, what exactly is it referring to? But in a sense, maybe that's for the best, because they then stand as sort of open categories that we can use to ref uh, in, in a variety of situations to say, you know, you're kind of going into mythology here. You're going off into genealogies, that sort of thing. Um, I'm generally hesitant to criticize books I haven't read, but there is a Christian book called The Unseen Realm, and I've read the back cover, and the gist of it is, if you read Genesis 6-4 the right way, where it talks about the Nephilim, then you realize there's this whole unseen spiritual realm, and it unlocks the key to reading all of Scripture rightly. And that, I think, is the kind, kind of an example of the sort of thing Paul's talking about here. Uh, Sorry, someone might work for the publisher of that particular book in, in the church. I don't, don't mean to make people squirm, but uh, 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 I, I, it, that seems to be the idea here. That Okay, Genesis 6-4, let's be frank, no one knows exactly what that verse means. And if you really spend all your time developing this complex theory of how to interpret it rightly, and that's, your whole ministry is built around that, uh, I'm not saying this person did that, but again, reading the back cover, it seems to me like an apt illustration of sort of getting caught up in myths and endless genealogies. And we know those sorts of documents were floating around in Paul's day as well. So uh, one Jewish piece of literature from the Second Temple period called the Book of Jubilees sort of retells the story of Genesis and Exodus with all sorts of mythological bits filled in. And so if you saw that movie, um, Darren Aronofsky, Noah, I don't know if anyone watched that one, but uh, in, in that movie, there's giant rock monsters at one point. Okay, that comes from the Book of Jubilees. That's kind of where they get some of these uh, wild ideas from. So in Paul's day, in our day, people latch onto things. Another one Amazon keeps suggesting to me, I guess because I read Christian books, is something about UFOs and I think one of the angels is involved in it and somehow, you know, that's the kind of thing, okay? You get the idea. Myths and I see Benji's getting the same suggestion on Amazon. <laughs> you haven't bought it yet though, right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> He's really bought into it. Okay, so, uh, but here's where just a pastoral moment. Different doctrines myths and genealogies, he contrasted, uh, oh sorry, actually let me go a bit more and then I'll back up to this. Uh, what's the defining mark of these things? He tells us two things in verse, four, uh, in verse 4, these defining marks of the sort of different doctrines to steer clear of. They promote speculation on the one hand and they lead us to neglect something else on the other. Yeah, the stewardship from God that is by faith. Um, that stewardship, it's a tricky word to translate. The word's oikonomia, which is what we get our word economy from. And so sometimes it can refer to household management. But here where it's referring to the stewardship of God, it's not 
stewardship from God that he's giving us to do, but rather it's saying the way that he has stewarded the course of history. And so in our language, we might refer to it as something like redemptive history, the the story of salvation. So he's saying on the one hand, these deviant doctrines and endless myths and genealogies that they're getting caught up in, they promote speculation and they lead us to neglect the big story of scripture, uh, the, 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 the general scope of redemptive history. And so if I can just pause for a moment as a sort of pastoral comment, is there is a risk in reformed circles of kind of getting caught up uh, majoring in minors, okay? We pride ourselves in having thorough systems of doctrine, and that's a very good thing, okay? I'm not putting down three forms of unity or Westminster standards, but there is a risk that we get caught up on the finer points and neglect the stewardship of God, the, the broad scope of what God is doing. And so Paul's going to tell us a couple times here that we need to keep the gospel front and center, the broad scope of redemptive history. That's not to say we shouldn't reflect on theology. We shouldn't try to know God as best we can. We shouldn't think hard thoughts, but it is just a warning not to get caught up in speculation and those sorts of things. Are we tracking so far? Okay, so don't do heavy-handed authoritarianism, and verse 5 is kind of a correction from that. What is the end goal of this charge? Is it to show up these teachers that we know better and we're way better teachers than them? Is it to win debate points? What does he say the aim of this charge is? Love. The aim of the charge is love. Paul talks uh, a little bit later, he's going to talk about excommunicating two guys from this church. And the fact that Paul's involved means maybe they were elders that got put out. um, Because in other cases, he just tells the church themselves to excommunicate. Uh, That's in verse 20 uh, of of chapter 1. Elsewhere, Paul talks about excommunicating people. And when he says he puts them out, it's so that they can be won back. Or in verse 20, so that they can learn not to blaspheme. It's not like get rid of them once and for all, but even the extreme of, of excommunicating someone, it's with the hope that they'll learn better and be restored. And so the aim of, of, of charging people, of correcting and challenging, uh, of confronting is love. That needs to be the animating uh, force behind church discipline, behind the exercise of authority, if it's going to be healthy. What does that love look like? It issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Those are all kind of synonyms, but have slightly different ideas. The heart is the inner life, okay? So uh, pure motives, pure inner life. The conscience is, is, is the will, but especially as it has to do with moral decision-making, okay? So a good conscience is a conscience that has been restored by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like a compass that generally steers you in the right direction, okay? But our compasses can get out of whack. Things pull them off, and so they're not guiding us the way they should. Um, We could talk a lot about the different things Paul says about conscience, but here he's just saying a good conscience and then a sincere faith. It doesn't just look externally like faith, but there's integrity to it. There's a reality to it, uh, a sincerity. It's genuine faith. So if if we put all this together, Paul's really telling Timothy there's two ways to test doctrine. There's the test of faith, And there's the test of love. He says that it it leads to speculation instead of focusing on the work of God 
that is by faith, the, the, what we believe, what we know about God from the received apostolic truth. We talked about that a little bit last week. So we can test it uh, in our day and age, in our situation, we test it against Scripture, that it aligns with what has been revealed. And then the second test is love. Does it promote love for God and neighbor? Or does it lead to, as we're going to hear in just a moment, uh, vain discussions, debates, those sorts of things? Okay, then Paul goes back in verse 6 to these certain persons again, tells us a bit more. They've swerved from these. So they've strayed from uh, uh, the stewardship of God, from love, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. They've swerved from it and have wandered away into vain discussions. Uh, vain, empty, pointless, fruitless discussions. Uh, again, there is a risk here. Theology is great. I love theology and teaching it and reading it and, and thinking about what we know about God. But there is a risk that even theology can become a sort of vain discussion that leads us away from the thing itself, knowing God and embracing him. What do they desire? They desire to be teachers of the law, but almost humorously, uh, Paul says, they, don't, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand either what they themselves are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Okay, maybe you've met people like this. They're real confident, and yet they really don't know what they're talking about. Okay, uh, hopefully I'm not the person like that that you've met. But uh, uh, So, again, it's a little bit humorous. He's saying they don't even understand the implications of their own claims that they're making, that if they understood what they're saying and really understood what it meant, they'd realize that it's foolish, right? But they don't even understand their own words. They're just making noise. And the things about which they're making confident assertions, they don't understand that either. As Shakespeare puts it, it's sound and fury signifying nothing. Okay, there's emptiness to it. This leads Paul then... Oh, I guess I'm jumping ahead. Okay, so they want to teach the law, but they don't understand the implications of their own teaching, and they don't understand the subject matter that they're dealing with. Okay, that's the basic situation. Uh, First paragraph there, three through seven. Any comments or other comments or questions there? Okay, good. Uh, then the fact that they want to be teachers of the law but are failing at that leads Paul to reflect for a moment on the law itself. That they want to be teachers of the law in and of itself is not a bad thing. Uh, this teachers of the law, it's actually one word that Paul seems to have coined, or at least the biblical authors have coined. It's used to describe people in Jesus' day. Um, I think it's in Luke 3 or 4 when Jesus is at the temple talking with the teachers of the law. I think that's one of the spots where it's used. And then Paul's own teacher, Gamaliel, is described also using the same word, a teacher of the law. And in neither case is there negative implications. It's not bad to be a teacher of the law. It's someone who's an expert in God's revealed will and tries to help other people understand it. So in and of itself, being a teacher of the law is a good thing. It's something good to aspire to. The problem is they don't understand the law and they don't understand what they're claiming about the law and they're caught up on endless speculation, all those sorts of things. Um, but that leads Paul then to remind us it's not in and of itself that they want to be teachers of the law that's a bad thing. No. What do we know? The law is good. That's Paul's basic assertion here. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. And in Greek, same as English, it's a play on words there where he uses the same word twice. That, um, 
The idea, though, is the law in and of itself is good, but it needs to be used in the right way. Okay? You can misuse the law, and then it becomes a bad thing. Okay? Um, a hammer is a good thing in and of itself. You can do all sorts of things with a hammer. If you try and change your oil with a hammer in your car, right, then it's not good, um, unless you know some trick I don't. A hammer's not the right tool to use for car maintenance. Okay, do you, uh, uh, good things misused become bad things. How does the law get used lawfully? How does it get misused? He tells Timothy, here's what you need to understand. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Um, there's a little bit of ambiguity there of what Paul's saying. I think here's at least where my money is, and then I'll tell you the other options. I think what he's saying is, if people had remained just all along, there'd be no need for the law. But because people are sinners, that's why the law is given. Um, some other options, though, is it could be saying, if you're self-righteous and think that you're just, and then try and use the law, you're going to lead to trouble. Or he could be saying something along the lines of, the law itself doesn't give righteousness. And so if you're trying to use the law to become just, that's not its intended purpose, and so it becomes a bad thing. Those all, I mean, they're all kind of overlapping ideas, but there's a little bit of ambiguity exactly what Paul's trying to say here. Well, what is the point of the law? Uh, in the Reformed tradition, uh, Luther, Protestantism, there's rich reflection on this. I think actually Aquinas has the same thing. So all I'd say, all the Christian tradition has rich reflection on this and says that there is three uses of the law. The law is used for three different things. It convicts, it restrains, and it teaches. The law is given to convict us, to show us that we do things that we ought not to and therefore are guilty. Okay, and we're going to get to the law in the morning service in a bit here, uh, go, going through Exodus. And hopefully, we will all be convicted in different realms that we have fallen short of God's law. So it convicts us and shows us our need for grace. It's meant to drive us back to God. Second, the law is given to restrain. It's to stop wicked people from being as bad as they might be. Okay, especially in Israel, this is sort of the civil use of the law, that everyone has to abide by it whether they have a living faith or not. The law is given to convict, to restrain, but then third, the law is given to teach us how to live in a way that honors God. Again, that's not making ourselves just, but rather it's saying once we have been redeemed, we'll see this pattern in Exodus, once we've been delivered, redeemed, brought into covenant with God, then the law is given to say, here's how to respond. Here's ways to live that honor God. So the law is good for convicting, restraining, and teaching, but it cannot give righteousness. It was never meant to. And that's not a fault in the law. Well, then Paul talks about who is the law given for? And uh, sorry, I kind of got away from my questions here. How is the Ten Commandments typically divided uh, in the catechisms? Yeah, duties towards God, duties towards fellow man. The duties towards God are 1 through 4. The duties towards fellow man, 5 through 10. And we see that same basic pattern here in 2 Timothy. Paul seems to be reflecting on that. The first part, duties towards God, is, is, is not in direct terms, but then we'll see uh, he shifts towards the duties towards man, and he uh, uh, directly seems to be patterning it on the commandments 5 through 9. The duties towards God... 
uh, or rather these are breaking the duties towards God, being lawless, okay, ignoring God's law and disobedient, ignoring his instructions, being ungodly and sinners, okay, so ungodly, not desiring to live in a way that is God-honoring, sinning, doing things against him, for the unholy and the profane. Um, so those, uh, you know, it's a variety of ways to fail in our duties towards God, being uh, lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. But then listen if you hear in this list um, the commandments 5 through 9. Those who strike their fathers and mothers. What's that the opposite of? Yeah, it's the opposite of honoring your fathers and mothers. Murderers. What's that the opposite of? <laughs> Don't commit murder, right? <laughs> uh, so it's, it's directly breaking that. Uh, uh, two for the next commandment, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. What's that breaking? Yeah, I heard someone say it. Felix, you got it? Don't commit adultery. That's right. These are ways of breaking the commandment. Don't commit adultery. Um, sexually immoral is a, the broad term, uh, broad term that we get our word pornography from, actually, and it's a, a variety of ways to be sexually immoral, to fail to live in fidelity. Uh, the, the next word, men who practice homosexuality, a couple comments there just because it's a um, pressing issue in our day. Um, the first comment is if you happen to have, I bet Dan might have his NIV, maybe not. Uh, oh, not open though. Uh, the, the older NIV, I believe, translates this as uh, the sexually immoral and perverts is the second one there. Um, the word Paul uses isn't value-laden in that way of like sort of an uh, overtone of disgust or something like that. It's a sort of matter-of-fact term that's used. I think we need to be careful not to use language that could be described, um, although this is often over, uh, abused, but described as homophobic in some way or another, that it's saying um, uh, those despicable people, somehow that's worse. Paul just says, here's more than one way to break this commandment, and this is one of them. So he's not singling out this sin, this way of breaking the commandment. The second thing to note is that it's a verbal form, not a noun form. So Paul never says sexually immoral and homosexuals as if a sort of person, by virtue of who they are, breaks this law. But rather he uses a verbal form. Those who practice homosexuality is how our Bible translates it, um, but it, it, it gets the sense of there's an action that you're doing, and that's breaking God's command. And so um, it's something that's practiced, not something you are. And so in contemporary discourse, there's a lot of talk about orientation and those sorts of things, identity, and it doesn't quite track with the way Bi the Bible talks about these issues. Um, but we need to be careful not to make it seem like if you have a predilection in one direction or another, you're automatically out of the kingdom or something like that. Uh, the message that Paul's saying here is we are all sinners who have broken God's law in a variety of ways and therefore need God's grace, and this is one of those ways. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 6, he's explicit that there's forgiveness. He says, uh, for such were some of you, but now you have been sanctified through God's work. Any other questions or comments on that? I know that's a um, hot topic that could have a lot of about it, but... I don't want to over overemphasize it, but yeah, yeah, Nick. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, of ways of misusing the law and claiming that it doesn't apply to certain groups. Um, I, I, I'm just not sure. It's not clear what the context is. By the second century, so 100 years on, the Gnostic movement certainly has those sorts of, um, it kind of goes two opposite ways where it says, if you're part of the elect, um, your spirit is elect, and so therefore they, it denies all bodily good. And so it says like sex isn't good, food isn't good, it's all bad. Or it goes the other way and says, because your spirit is saved, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body, and so you can indulge in whatever way you want. And so um, certainly these kinds of tendencies, and, and Gnosticism certainly is myth and genealogy and that sort of thing, is very characteristic of that. Um, so is there some early forms of that going on in Ephesus here that, that kind of blossoms into that, possibly, um, but it's just not, it's hard to say exactly. Does that, is that a fair answer? Um, is, that, is that a smart way of saying I don't know? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, Benji. Sure, sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and he's doing something different than like the Sermon on the Mount, for example, where Jesus is saying, if you even have these motives, these desires, that's already the seed that grows the plant of these sorts of things. Here, Paul seems to be looking at the other end saying, here's the fully grown plant, the fruit it ends up producing is, you know, physically attacking your parents, you know, murdering all these sorts of things. So yeah, it is, it is definitely saying these are egregious forms of violating these, or uh, obvious, very apparent forms of breaking these, yeah. What Paul's saying here is that the law is given for these sorts of people. Um, and we, and we're not saying that it's, we're not necessarily drawing the line between the law given for the inclination versus the act. Well, it is, it, I, I'm just not quite sure, but it is interesting that he leaves off the 10th commandment at the end. So coveting, which deals with the heart issue, he doesn't, he doesn't include any example of that. So he seems to be focusing here on, um, and maybe it's because it's writing to Ephesus, which is a context where there would be some Jews, but predominantly Gentile group. And here's like things you can look around and be like, yeah, that's pretty obviously um, bad things. I think, and, and I think maybe specifically on the issue of, of singling out men who practice homosexuality, there is kind of in the ancient world this idea that um, you can be married to your wife and you, being faithful to her means that's the only person you have children with, but kind of whatever else you do on the side doesn't really matter as long as it's with someone of lower social standing. And Paul's kind of drawing out, he's saying, no, uh, any lack of faithfulness to your one spouse is sexual immorality. You know, it doesn't matter who it's with, other women, other men, whatever. And so that, I think that's maybe, maybe part of why he's getting at that. Uh, liar, uh, enslavers is an egregious example of, of stealing, okay? And the Old Testament identifies... Um, Kidnap slavery as a form of stealing, liars and perjurers bearing false witness, and then uh, coming to an end here, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
Uh, that word sound doctrine, it means healthy doctrine, and so there's this idea that it's, um, uh, it, it, you know, the sort of doctrine you should be focusing on, healthy, sound doctrine. But what's interesting is it's, uh, uh, he's saying whatever else behavior is contrary to sound doctrine. So he's saying doctrine itself is not just an intellectual thing, but it produces behaviors. And so by its fruit, you should hopefully be able to see something about those doctrines. So um, ways of living that contradict either what we claim to believe or... Um, or, or don't keep in, in accord with, with what sound doctrine should produce. Verse 11 then, wrapping up. Uh, verse 11 applies to all of verses 8 through 10. So Paul's saying in accordance, uh, the right use of the law, all of this stuff, what it's given for, it's in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with, whom I ha- with which I have been entrusted. Uh, a lot of genitive of phrases packed in there. So the right use of the law is in accordance with the gospel. Good tidings about Jesus. Paul uses this term 60 times in every letter, I think, except for Titus. So it's, it's one of Paul's big ideas. It, use the law in accordance with the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Um, here I'm going to cheat for a second. This morning in Exodus 16, it was getting hot. I know it's getting hot now. But one of the things I passed over quickly is there's this weird moment where before the quail come, before the bread comes, Moses has the people assemble. He tells them what God's going to do. And then they look up into the wilderness and they see the glory of the Lord in the cloud. Uh, and then it just keeps going. There's no, what does that mean? It never really explains it. It just keeps moving. Is there some kind of lightning storm in the cloud? Uh, Do the clouds open and they see some vision? Uh, Maybe they see Mount Sinai in the distance in the wilderness and the it doesn't really explain, but they see the glory of the Lord. I think that's the first time in the Old Testament that phrase, the glory of the Lord is used. What we see in Exodus is sort of uh, firework glory of the Lord, right? It's, it's very big stuff that God does. The plagues, the signs in Egypt, dividing the sea, uh, providing manna in the wilderness. And then when we get to Mount Sinai in a couple weeks, huge black clouds descending on the mountain and lightning and thunder and loud sounds. Uh, it's big, visible glory of the Lord. And yet what does Paul say here? He says the good news of Jesus, the lowly baby born in a manger who lives in obscurity as a carpenter who spends three years as an itinerant teacher who doesn't even seem to own his own home and then is put to death by cedar as a traitor in that life death and of course resurrection we see the glory of the blessed god and that idea of blessed god it's not so much that we bless him but that he is the one as we sing in the doxology from whom all blessings flow so the blessings of god and his glory are seen in the gospel. Again, it's the same idea there as the um, uh, speculations instead of the stewardship of God. He's saying this is what we need to focus on, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And that's uh, just the passive form of trusting. Um, I've been made to believe this and hold on to it. That's what I have from 1 Timothy. Are there any other questions or comments or observations? I know it's really hot. Yeah, Benji.
Yeah. 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 Um, if it's ever the sort of thing that you would say to someone like, you know, uh, this just isn't for you, it's too complicated. Like, that should be a red flag. Like, yeah, there is deep complications to the mystery of the faith, and yet it's something that's for everyone. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, thanks, Benji. Let's turn then to our time of prayer.